Welcome to the Creative Hustle Podcast. The only podcast for creative and artistic entrepreneurs. I'm Aaron Salazar, founder of Poseidon Theater Company in New York City. Police in general, I mean, if there were like the four heads, like on Mount Rushmore, of that entire genre of empowered female music, she would be one of them. I'm Hassan Saeed, founder of House Urban, all natural skin and body care for the professional performer. There are just, there are runs Visceral to this reactions. day. Visceral reactions. Did I steal you? Like, I, I learned every run on that album. Thank you for joining us today. It's time to hustle. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Creative Hustle Podcast. I'm Hassan, founder of House Urban. And I'm Aaron, founder of Poseidon Theater Company. And today we are talking about music. Yes, music. It's so crazy that we, sometimes we take for granted like how the roles that music plays in our lives. And it's it's so common and it's everywhere that we just sort of roll with it. But today we want to kind of break down like the contributions that music has on our lives and what the soundtracks are and um, make some recommendations, influences, share some things. Um, We're doing this in tandem with Ethnix Media uh, and their audio theme that's happening for the month. And, you know, audio is all encompassing of so many things, but we're really going to zone in on, on music and, and our personal sort of stories and histories with it. Um, For me, um, especially with, with house urban music is sort of the, it's the heartbeat of a lot of things. It's it's the heartbeat of a lot of the fragrance stories when I'm formulating, when I'm making things, when I'm naming things, I'm writing fragrance briefs. Um, there's always some sort of music involved, especially when I'm in, like, in production. I'm having to physically do some manual labor. I break out my big blender and my bottles, and I tell Alexa to throw something on. Usually I have like a formulating playlist, uh, depending on what I'm working on at that point. That'll help kind of just keep me up and focused. Um, and I know for you, music is always really big in terms of sound design for your shows. Well, and beyond that, it's my life. Uh, I realized at one point in my 20s, actually, that essentially I chase music. Um, and then growing up as a dancer and then learn, being trained to be a choreographer and then coming into directing as a choreographer, I remember saying to some coworkers that it's interesting that we spend our lives chasing the next song to visualize our work. So for me, my life doesn't even exist as an artist without it, because it is the definitive first thing that comes. Uh, It is the chicken before the egg or vice versa. Uh, When I start working on a show or anything, the first thing I do, even though now I'm blessed to have original composers, is I find the music and then I go from there. If I don't have that, I can't work. Um, and I was you know, very lucky because as a young man, I was exposed to every form of music you could ever think of. Um, and it, it, we, in, the, in the last episode, we talked about Xennials and it's sort of, you know, growing up where our grandparents had record players, like not the ones you buy now that are republications, but I usually get set in front of the little Zenith that actually had the bulbs that lit up that made it spin. And they put all the records in front of me. I mean, everything from Vivaldi to Otis Redding, like everything was sort of in my little brain. And I, now that I look back on it, I think that that's actually was the, was the advent because I usually I used to stick my head inside of it 
because you were so little. And the Zenith had a, this particular record player had almost like a little roof. And I used to stick my head inside of it to get my ear closer to hear the music. And I think that visceral feeling is something actually I'm not realizing until I say right now. I've been chasing that my whole life is the visceral emotional reaction that music creates. Um, and then I want to continue to expand upon it. And now it's the de- definition of the aesthetic of my work. And so sometimes actually I even have to step away from it because it's overwhelming to me. <laughs> I hear that. I, th- I think for me, I don't realize how much music I've absorbed until I hear something. So I'll hear a song and go, I know that melody. That's not an original melody. Or like that. Yep. You know, like, and I will, I will be like, yeah. I need to figure out what that chord, what progression, that, what that is. chord progression is, yep. where that came from. And then I will go and seek out whatever original song sampled it and be like, oh, that's what it is. Well, or this sounds like this. Or how many people like are jacking Rogers and Hammerstein to this day? Hello. And, and, you know, Hassan and I both have a musical theater background. And, you know, for young artists, musical theater, it's like, that's why I think there's so many kids who get involved in it because it really is the great amalgamation of everything that you love as an artist. You get to express yourself. It's pushing a story. And in that sense, musical theater was such a gift uh, in my young life because it taught me how music can manifest an entire actual physical reality, Yeah, you know, that has now continued to push both of our, our, our brands and also just the sentiment in music. It's the same thing with food, you know, like going back to the, the beats and the sounds that like dug inside of you. Now we see these viral videos of like little cute kids who are just shaking it and they don't even know where it's coming (laughs) from. They've just got it. Right. And they're like looking in the camera like, yes, it's that internal uh, dopeness that literally a a beat can bring out in us because, you know, ultimately tribally it's what we're all chasing is that moment around a fire where we're just gutturally trying to find ultimately the heartbeat of a, of our of our rhythm. Yeah. It's and it's amazing how things are just sounds, much like smells, will trigger something for you. I think that's why for me it's in, in formulating, particularly building around fragrance, I always kind of start with the feeling and, and some music. Um, so my latest fragrance, Savage Blonde, it actually the the idea for Savage Blonde was inspired by a chord progression that showed up over and over again in Andrew Lippa's The Wild Party. Oh, and uh, um, that story with Queenie and this relationship she was in, and I—it's been one of my favorite musicals for a very really long time. And I've always sort of wondered because it was a period piece and it was set in the twenties, like what, what would Queenie, who is this vaudeville dancer, and she's highly she has this highly charged sexual energy, and she's in this really crazy relationship, and she's also in this industry. Um, and she's a showgirl. Like, what What does she smell like? And that sort of started that journey of what would this woman smell like? Or what does her day smell like? And what are the things that get her excited? And what is it that brings out this animal attraction in these men that she's dealing with? And what are the sounds? And what did the city sound like? What did New York City sound like mm-hmm. in the 20s? And, it, and I've sort of began to explore that sort of aspect of it. And... That's where it all started. And from there, I started to think of all of the 
Savage Blondes throughout history and what that sounded like. And then I built a playlist actually called Savage Blonde. Who most of them weren't natural blondes. Let's get that well, That was the other Hello. thing, too. It's a fantasy. Where it was, okay, using blonde as armor and the concept and the construct of blonde as, as, as armor. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, but all of it was really based around sound and feeling. And we've all been blonde at one time. You went platinum at one point, right? Yeah, I'm sort of blonde now. But like, I went platinum because I was actually going lavender. So I had to go like light, 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 light. And then I went purple. But <laughs> that's right. Purple to lavender. But yeah, um, I'm working my way back to blonde. Um, so it's, it, it, it really is connected. It's one of those, those senses that's connected to memory as well. Um, but and, I also I also think it's connected to ritual. So yes, I there are certain things I listen to at certain times. So like what, Aaron? What do you listen to when you're when you're getting ready to go out or like you're getting ready for your day? Mm, music is kind of uh, much like any relationship that you're in evolves over time. And for me now, I tend to listen to whatever. Uh, I'm using as research for the play I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's also because I, there's a, there's a, there's a way of thinking called fuzzy logic. It's where you're not really focusing on the main issue, but you're allowing your mind to sort of just go through all your everyday life tasks. And inside of that fuzzy logic, you tend to get insight and sometimes epiphanies. What tends to happen is I tend to find the soundtrack. Like for example, I've been essentially, in pre-production for Hedda Gabler, uh, Poseidon Theater Company's next show for like 15 years. And I've actually kind of been researching that music. It started with like Philip Glass just because of the piano and the drama. And now it's kind of like I get inspired by people like Regina Spector. Mm-hmm. But I actually try to think of my day and walk around with that's those sounds in my head. And that's kind of what gets me going. Now, going to something a little more accessible when I was moving to New York City, uh, and I was in New York in California, I used to go out dancing a lot. And there was that song we all know—it's uh, Stardust. Uh, music sounds better with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that sounded like my life in New York. I was like, "This is going to." And I used to literally put that song on, doom, 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 boom, boom, and I would stand in my room and I would envision myself in New York City, living a certain life, and I would dance. And it was my ritual about going about my day. Yeah. The music sounds better with you. And there was just something about the energy of that, that really like was like the epitome of what I envisioned, like my life to sound like in New York, which is interesting now because like now what's funny is like when I'm cooking the other day, I was introducing my boyfriend who's, who's a little younger than me. You'll appreciate this. He didn't really know the bodyguard soundtrack. And I was like, excuse me. What have you been doing with your life? Excuse me. Yeah. No, he didn't really know okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Yep. How? So I, I, I'm giving him a whole, a whole lesson. When uh, you say he didn't really know, did he, did he know Top Line? Did he know Top Line? Okay. He knew I will always love you, and I think weirdly for some reason Queen of the Night. So you didn't know I have nothing. Nope. You don't know Run to You. Nope. But you know I will Queen of the Night. It's really? very specific. I think because which he means to, he didn't even know the B side, like he nope. didn't even know seduction nope. and or like lovely day, day, lovely day, lovely day, lovely day. Well, thank, right. thank God he has you. Okay, so the point is, <laughs> watching his brain explode to run to you was everything to me. And actually, what I've been doing a lot lately is for I'm going 
kind of further back into like the songs that make you make stinky cheese face. Yes, the fun, that funk face. Stinky cheese face. For example, like uh, 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 Monica's "Before You Walk Out of My Life." I'm so. Wait a minute. I'm wait, so glad that you whatever, brought that up. Ever? What? Oh my god. There's. I'm gonna no, poke your eyes out. Okay. Uh, okay. I there's something, listener, that you need to understand about Aaron. I have spent a lot of time lip syncing for my life <laughs> in my various living situations and rooms. And there is nothing that makes me lip sync for my life uglier than before you walk out of my life, sitting up in my room. Uh, actually, the whole Waiting to Exhale soundtrack in, in, in general. Which is a whole cultural moment in and of itself. Um, the Erica Badu live. Uh, yes. Badu. 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 <laughs> I can't. I can't Badu. take it. Even. <laughs> Badu. 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 So, but then, but then you go into that Erica Badu, right? And then that makes me chase Chet Baker. And then that makes me chase Miles Davis. Mm. And then that makes me chase. So it's interesting because what I've been finding lately is as I continue to move forward in life, I am either listening to music that's inspiring my work or going kind of to the roots of like the baseline of the stuff that literally makes me have sticky cheese face. And, and subsequently after that, I'm a huge fan of, electronic based music mm. and almost more earlier electronic based music because the overall atmosphere quality of it, which is clearly what millions of people chase um, kind of to me represents ultimately sort of the perpetual energy that makes me love this city. So it's how you see yourself sonically. Yes. How dare you bring it back sonically? No, but it's yes. And you know, I was very lucky that, you know, my mom, uh, I mean, I, I, the eight track of Purple Rain can't. Don't even. I, I can't begin. I just want to actually go back to that Monica moment. Yes. Because that first album. Stank. Miss Thang. Everything. It was literally called Miss Thang. Miss Thang. 15, it, right? 15? Well, she was 16 when it came out. Okay, but I think she, she, I think she, I think she made 15 and a half. She was, maybe she was 15 when it came out. voice. Which, that voice, she was 14 when she recorded that can't, album. Can't take it. And I... There are just there are runs visceral to this reactions day visceral reactions that I still use like I I learned every run on that album and there were a couple that strategically didn't really make any sense but still worked like in retrospect I was like oh you were fourteen and it's kind of going off yes but there were a few where I was just like it took me a while to get but I it's still nailing to this day that whole album. First of all, I feel like, I mean, I we all know it has been acknowledged in the pantheon of, of debuts, but I, I feel like that shit needs a revival. Everybody should It ab- it's so it absolutely unbelievable. Does. It's so unbelievable. I was listening to it the other day, just like, this is baby. And, and she's singing like she's at 32. And on the flip side of that, you, you can't talk about uh, Monica and not talk about fucking Brandy. Bible. Don't. Vocal. Listen. Bible. When Brandy, when Brandy did, went to Chicago, literally Chicago, the, the musical, Hassan and I, not only, first of all, were within five minutes of that press release, 
Like we're going. We are going. We, let's be clear. We spent money. Okay. We actually yeah. bought tickets. <laughs> we were like, we're okay. Done. We like cleared schedules. We made things happen. We fired people. Like we had to punch someone in the throat and we, we were there. Flaw- flawless. Tone. Flaw- pitch. Pitch. Fla- dance. Like- and by the way, one of the only Roxy Hearts that is coming in recent days with non-modified choreography. She did Anne Ryan King's choreography. Everything. Everything. Star. And you know, it's the thing funny, everything about Brandy, you know, with you know, for the unfortunate, you know, uh, manslaughter thing that happened, which was terrible. Um, I, I sometimes think people forget that she was, is, is one of the biggest selling artists in the world. I think too. And it's something I think about frequently. I feel like they take her for granted. In terms of, well, it's just in terms of like getting older and like looking at, at your, the next generation's musical tastes. Yes. Particularly the iTunes generation. I always struggle with, is this music trash or are you just old, right? Because your ear changes. Oh my God, it's so interesting. But the difference is, when I look back on the people who were, particularly the artists who were teens when they came out, when I was a teenager, even looking back on it, they were preternaturally talented. So you have someone like Monica who was sounding like she's 35 and she was 14, who was vocally able to take material and own it at that age. You have Christina Aguilera, yes. who has had that voice and she was 10 years that old. That made no sense on her on Mickey Mouse Club. Like, it, it didn't make it didn't any make sense. sense. But then it, it did. You yes. know, like, yes. you have Jessica Simpson, who, while she was behind the curve in a lot of ways was singing her face. Well, and let us not forget, let's call it out because now she's just in Singapore. She's proven that, that health has done her right. Britney's voice was off the hook for a 14 year old little white girl. Right. Off the hook. Off. Oh, ma, ma, ma. Like before all she the, got self-conscious about it and they started she making her sing in her upper yeah, register like where she, she wasn't comfortable. Yeah, no, she, she also she was, was all chest but voice there you and go. But, And also there you go. People, Monica, Jessica, Brandy, Britney. These are all people that their voices are unique. One of a kind. And they sort of paved the way for now what I, I don't, I'm not going to say copycats because I think these people's instruments are unique, but definitely um, they were that next generation of one of a kind performers that definitively you could hear them down the street muffled and you'd be like, that's Christina Aguilera. Well, I think that's, that's, I, I feel like that's, that's a fine line too though, right? Because a distinctive tone because is a distinctive the, tone, yeah. right? So like, while I would never, while I love Rihanna, I, she's not, I don't, I, I would never call her a vocalist. She's no, she's better. a recording artist. She's a recording artist and her tone is specific so you can pick her out of a bunch. But what I'm saying is that these were singing. years ago, these girls were singing. Singing. On top of being beautiful and being charismatic. Singing. They had they had the goods and like singing on top of very uh now i don't this is no disrespect brilliantly produced but very straightforward arrangements there wasn't a lot of room to ride the beat no it was really about that vocal performance i think that's that that yeah you had you had your and like literally a driving rhythm happening but you know and like especially uh monica and 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 brandy r and b rhythm and blues and rocking that melody line. Yeah, but even with the when you look at the girl groups from like the and mid nineties, early two- prejudice wrote a song about it. I, I mean, let's talk about the greatness that is in Vogue. In Vogue, like to hear it? Here it go. Free your mind. Because every last one every- of those girls was a lead singer. Yes, and they all looked like models. Yes, <laughs> and they and they all and the those house harmonies down.
from 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 giving him something he can feel a cover, obviously, to free your mind. Are you fucking kidding a me? A full on rock track, like, <laughs> and like tipping the house down. Whole the whole the whole package. It's they're not giving a little nod to the ballroom scene at that even. Right. Like, like it's it. But those are the moments, though, right? Where you hear when you hear those things sort of come full circle. The other thing I was also thinking about um, the album that I was one of the ones I obsessed with, and I just gave it a listen to, and that I've been revisiting is Missy Elliott's first album. Oh, it's. I remember getting going to the store, buying that CD, taking it home, and keeping it on repeat for twelve hours. Mm-hmm. Um, super duper fly just as a moment was that whole the whole era. The first time I laid eyes on Missy Elliott in an inflated trash bag, Can't. wobbling down the streets, nope. Can't do like it. she just lip glass within an inch of her <laughs> life, with Can't. a helmet on. Nope. Jigging in an inflated trash bag with a Shaka Khan sample. Talking, I can't take it. It wasn't Shaka Khan. It was. Um, I can't stop the rain. It was. That's not Shaka Khan. Oh, Rufus. No. Who is it? Well, Shaka Khan was in Rufus. It's Anne. Anne. Any. Um. Anne Peebles. Anne Peebles. That's where that sample came from. I'm, my mind was blown. Well, also too, like Missy's tracks were like these Rubik's cubes. Like they just kept, you just kept turning them. And like there was, there was, there were sounds within sounds and beats inside it's of beats. classic Timbaland too. Like that, that partnership. Oh God. And we can't talk about Super Duper Fly without talking about Aaliyah's One in the Million, which is where we first learned of Missy and Tim. production on that and it was like nothing we'd ever heard before and we also have to remember that era was so important for Aaliyah because she had been gone for several years and was coming out of the quagmire of an underage marriage to that pedophile now known as R. Kelly I can't to this day complete reinvention she came up came back out of nowhere and came back and revolutionized this brand new sound with these two unknown producers where do you feel who changed the the entire lane of what we thought R&B was at that time what are your thoughts on when Sierra showed up um I thought that we were ready for it because keep in mind that track was hot as shit Sierra showed up when goodies came out she was 16 too yeah a fresh 16 with the bum, worst bum, hair color. Da, 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 da. It was fine. Oh, it was she got, real bad, wasn't that, it? That, that, that orange, that orange yeah. one. But, it was again, like manic panic. She, she was repping for these Southern girls who yep. were just like dancing in the parking lot. And actually, it was interesting because they really didn't go, they upgraded the brands that she was wearing, but they didn't go too far outside of how she just would have, dr- how she, she just would have dressed naturally. Because, ex- you know, it, she, it was about her being the successful girl from around the way. And, she was. She was. And I think that the pairing of her with Jazzy Faye and, and Missy Elliott made a lot of sense. And it was such a a marker of that moment and where we were too. And like, and, and well, then Krog you know, and on the flip trap. side, around the same time too, then we had the influx of all the um, angsty folk girls, right? Like we got like it was interesting on the other side of like more um, folky. We had that folk revival, right? We had. Uh, Jewel, the phenomenon of Jewel showed up. You got to remember all. Well, this Jewel was, happened way before that. Yeah, but like 
the phenomenon of these girls were all weirdly happening. Oh, so you're talking about the, the Lilith Fair era. Yeah, well, yeah, but it's just interesting because like we had like this wave of I mean, really, let, let's 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 liken it all just to just really intense female artists. Yeah. Who just we were in a monsoon of them. Yeah. We were consumed by the female voice. I actually think that that whole time, I would say uh, that whole time period, we had everything from the aforementioned brilliance of these young ladies, then these other women singing more folk driven music. And, and without all- us being cognizant of it, we were completely bathed in the female voice yeah. on every different. And we were bathed in the female voice, albeit through a male lens because all the producers were dudes. Well, I mean, just like, but, I mean, yeah. But I, yeah, I think that also there was, that was also the, we're looking back on that era too. We also began to see the, the crossover of country to pop with Shania Twain. Country to pop. And how Shania Twain fixed her teeth. Yeah. And let's not. Can we talk about Shania slay the fucking game? It's Twain, please. And how she ushered in what uh, the slaying the game of of that in, fusion in general, oh, just yeah. in general. The very fact that this woman was solidly a country artist and had this huge crossover pop hit on Top Forty Radio, and then fixed some which teeth, brought in a whole yeah. era mm-hmm. of that, and that and that combo of her and Mutt Lang and how like they wound up. But she was on with, the shoulders of of of, of Dolly though. Well, all country girls are. I mean, yeah, let's just but say it is what it is. We had not seen a commercial crossover from country to pop like that. I don't was think Faith ever. Faith Evans after that? Would you Faith say Faith Evans is not a country Not Faith artist. Evans, Faith Hill. <laughs> My God, Faith Evans. <laughs> um, and you're we'll not supposed to make later. that mistake. We'll talk about her later. I, Faith, Hill, Faith Hill came after that. She yeah. was still very solidly country, but that was Shania who kicked down that door. Especially really with the music did. and the visuals and the yeah. way that, that, that things were being her shot. Her leopard print ass. Jumpsuit, you know, like in the desert, in the the gloves on, in the desert, beat for the gods. It's, and then after that came the Dixie Chicks shortly thereafter. Yes, and that that took that. Remember when the Dixie Chicks got completely like their careers were over because they made a political stance? If that wasn't a TikTok, I don't know what Mm. was. Oh my god, because they're taking down these three white girls, Mm. girl. Mm -mm. Um, and you know, you're absolutely right. And then you know. Kind of the fact that, like, let's look at it. I mean, there was a time where uh, Sarah McLaughlin was running the shit. Well, that was that. That was that Lilith era, yeah, right? So you Lilith had Fair. Sarah yeah. McLaughlin. You had Indigo Girls, which became Indigo commercial. Girls. They they you came had up. Annie uh, DeFranco still running Defra- the Annie table. DeFranco, girl. Tori Amos, Tori Amos, Fiona Apple, Fiona Apple, angry, skinny, um, Alanis Morissette. Not, well, come I on. I mean, come on. Um, uh, there are so many at Alana Davis. Alana Davis, Davis show up. Davis, I am thirty-two flavors and then some. I can't. Alana take Davis' it. first single was a cover Alana of Alana DeFranco da- song. Oh, actually, let's talk about this shit. Alana Davis's that fucking premiere album was everything. Flawless. If you listen to that shit to this day. Can I tell you my Alana Davis story? Yes, please. So that album came up, I think, came out in 96 or 97, the first album. Um, Definitively. Yeah, I think it was just called, oh, no, it was called 32 Flavors. And it was something about Scars. She had a little. Well, it was an illustration yeah, on the front yeah, of her face. Yeah, her face. And I, so I ate, lived and breathed this album and it was just everything to me. And I, uh. A few years later, the lay your body down. I moved. Yes, oh. lullaby turtle. Lullaby. L- I can't. I can't take. I honestly can't take. It. Um, so I 
fast forward like four years later, I've moved to New York City. I've been here for like a year. I'm walking through the Best Village. I see this lady and she's like looking in this window and I walk past her and I go, I think that's Alana Davis. So I turn around and I just scream her name. I go, Alana. And she turns around and I went, holy fuck, that's her. So now I've just screamed, Blame it on me. I've 97. Sc- Sorry. I've screamed this woman's name down the street like I knew her. So now I have to go talk to her. So I walked over and I was like, oh, hey, hi, you don't know me. I just had to tell you that, um, you know, your, your album, your first album got me through high school. And uh, thank you. And how's your cat? <laughs> I, hate, and, I hate you. And she looked at me and she said, okay, well, first of all, give me a hug. So we hugged and she was like, thank you so much. And we talked and she was telling me that the new album's coming out. Like, she's like, it's weeks away from coming out. And, and I'm, I'm going to be playing at this club down the street. What year is this? This had to be 99. I think it was still 99. So I just. Shortly thereafter. I, or shortly yeah. thereafter, I just moved there. Um, and it, she, it was just a, a moment. Like I, Alana Davis and that whole, I cannot understand how much that, that singer songwriter affected me personally absolutely Um, and i would have never discovered alana davis if it were not for sarah mclaughlin yes one there and there you have because before spotify kids we had to search yeah you had to chase it which i don't get me wrong i like spotify for that reason i love that you get to discover new music then let's cut to a male artist that i'll never i was reading rolling stone remember when you used to read rolling stone remember this remember that religiously religiously and vibe that was my other magazine um reading rolling stone and they're talking about this gay artist Rufus Wainwright, the fuck is this? And he came out with that first album, Rufus Wainwright, and it was in that CD, and it had the, it was like highly illustrated and designed, and then you open it up, and it was a really cool lyric book. Remember that? Yeah. And it was in cardboard, which was sort of a new thing too. That wasn't really happening that much yet. Things were still in plastic. Oh, the cardboard fold. It was out. a cardboard fold. Yeah, out. it was like a little. That book. was not standard. No, at all. and I remember thinking, oh, how, how interesting. And I bought it. And that blew my mind too, because here was this like classically trained musician, which I didn't even know who the Wayne Whites were, mm-hmm. but now we know, you know. Uh, and hearing this very unique voice, and not even knowing if I liked it, like really blew my mind. And as a young gay man, I I felt like it was the you know I got to say, looking back now, I really felt this sense of like. Oh, I'm one of I that he's one of us, or I'm one of like I felt camaraderie mm. with an artist because there really to be an openly gay artist really wasn't a thing, not real. No, if no, I, look, like, I no, mean, like, like, must, like, no, no. If I look at it, no. and if they were, they were very specific niche acts, or they were like club music, right? Which there's nothing wrong with that either. I'm not. Right. I love but that's, that. But I that's love all. That's the only lane you really saw them in. Shit. And here comes this romantic, sad artist with this very melancholy beautiful album and i just was like it 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 blew my mind speaking of gay artists and i feel like you know sometimes you have there are artists who come out and they kind of create the blueprint yes and then the later on down the road can we talk about luther vandross at some point yeah vandross um later on down the road another artist will come out and who's essentially that blueprint and have more success and it feels Sad because you're like, oh, but this other person. Did oh, this. I hear everything you're saying. Like when someone by default piggybacks off the blueprint of of, of the person who created the genre, or, or, just the, the lane, or just the lane, right? The lane. So for me, it was. I felt justice for Sam Sparrow. God 
damn it, Sam Sparrow. Because you know what? Um, that shit. First of all, the it it is, but it, it's okay. Black and gold, right? Yes. Everything. Okay. And then his most recent uh, endeavor. Um, what's the name of the album? He's looking it up. I don't know. Um, I'm, I say that just because to say that there people don't realize and they forget. There would be no Sam Smith if there was no Sam Sparrow. Good morning, class. Like, I look at Sam Smith and I have and a you know hard what? Let's, time. Let's call this shit out. The reason Sam Sparrow uh, was not as... Um, God, he's so fucking hot. Um, but here we go. 21st Century Life. There was yes. that album. And then... Uh, no, no, no. That's the song. Return to Paradise. There it is. And then Sam Sparrow... Uh, Return to Paradise was his last album in 2012. That's ridiculous. Okay, the point is, is that the reason Sam Sparrow, and let's fucking call a spade a spade, was not as popular as Sam Smith is because Sam Smith is fucking safe because he's an unsexualized gay man by the public eye. That's what I think. Sam Sparrow was talented and sexy as fuck. And we can't have a sexy, talented gay artist because it, it, I, and I, 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 I don't know why I feel strongly about this, but Sam Sparrow was sort of like the sad, pretty-faced like chubby boy who with a beautiful voice. You mean Sam Smith? Sam Smith, right? Which, you know, and I'm not talking about his weight. I'm not into that body shaming shit. But he was a very approachable, watery-eyed, tenor, like almost like choir tenor, right? But then you have Sam Sparrow, who is this very handsome, sexy, like... Sort of aggressive. Aggressive, And gay, un- unapologetic. Unapologetically gay male artist. And like... But to be fair. Yes. To be fair. We also have to look at the time period. Well, I mean, you know, it when, was right when before the shit all. When Sam Sparrow's first album came out, it was like 2004, 2005. 2000, 2008. It's, wasn't that, it was 2008. I just looked that shit up. 2008, really? Yes, that's But still, saying. 2008 is was very not, different from 2015. Good morning, class. And, and, and I think you also have to consider that Sam Smith is also English. So he falls into Australian, right? And he falls into that area, that different area of blue eyed soul where you, there's a different bucket for them and it's a whole other animal. And he broke in Europe who, by, by, by nature of being Europeans, who they are, they don't have the hangups. No. So, so there were, it was a lot of kismet happening, but I think that you're absolutely right. And it'll be interesting to see because a lot of of Sam Smith's material is about him being brokenhearted and left for dead by these dudes. I know, poor thing. I'm like, girl. But you know, like, but but that's okay because there's a lot of artists who that's that's their that's their raison d'être. But I'm gonna say it, and I'm you know I'm just gonna put it out there again because you were very diplomatic about it. Listen, Sam Smith, she started snatching trophies and losing weight, honey, and got that Latin boyfriend, and she started feeling her beat, and she started to get a lot more vocal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes, and yes, yes. I think the next the next test will really be this next album. Yeah. Because he's been a lot more vocal and he hasn't just been like the, the homosexual Enoch singing the pretty songs. I will kill you. I, <laughs> and I, it, it's going to be the litmus test, right? Because now that he's been very public and a lot more open about what's going on with him and who he is and what he enjoys and what he's been doing. How the material sort of changes and now that we're in this new environment and how it will be accepted is going to be a different story. And it's also been a couple of years. You know, and also, too, I, I, I do agree uh, with the notion uh, – I'm not agreeing with anything – like uh, with the notion um, that you also can't – like it's not an artist's responsibility to represent an entire community. I don't believe in that shit either. That's bullshit. Yeah, it's, but yeah, I will say commercially – I there are reasons why reason why certain reasons why certain uh, 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 blessings of success happen to some artists because of how palatable they are to the public. Yeah, and or sometimes they're just light years ahead. Like case in point, for me, 
I see it all the time. I, with Rihanna, I love Rihanna. And I think that she's incredible and she has built her entire cottage industry around herself. And she's sold some units. But what people fail to realize when they look at Rihanna is that there would be no Rihanna if there were no Khalees. Good morning, class. Everything that Rihanna has done, Khalees has already done. (laughs) And And I'm going to, yeah. And she was the blueprint. And it's like, it's, people don't see it through that lens as a lot well, of Well, Khalees in general. I mean, like, if there were, like, the four heads, like, on Mount Rushmore of of, of that entire genre of, of empowered female music, she would be one of them. Yeah. Okay? Like, you, like she's everything. And always five or six years ahead of everyone five, six else. Years, and, and, like, and so, that's and so dope heel. that it's almost like she's just sit to me, at least, as a, like, in, my fa- in the fantasy of my mind, She's just sitting on her throne of 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 artistry. Right. You know, and she's she's literally an artist. She is chasing her work for the sake of work and obviously making a living. But like her level of integrity with her work is evident because she doesn't need a certain amount of What's the word I'm looking the for? Son, accolades. There it is. Cuz obviously you, you listen, uh art doesn't well Music and theater and things don't exist unless your audience is listening or watching, right? right? So we need them there. But the accolades aren't important to her, nor is the daily uh, BS that comes with fame. Um, and, and going going into that, uh, I was, uh, once again, schooling my boyfriend. But a lot of people don't know about this. People are like, oh, Daft Punk's amazing. Yeah, they are. But fuck a Daft Punk. Listen to Zap and Roger. I can't. I can't. Listen. Zap. Listen. Listen. This entire new Bruno Mars era is a tribute to Zap and Roger. Zap and Roger. Zap and Roger. Is it Roger and Zap? Is it Roger and Zap? It's Zap and Roger, Roger and Zap. It depends on what album you got. Because like they had that, the album that really blew them up, re, re, um, reinvigorated their revival to the culture was when, remember when Columbia would do the put a penny and get a certain amount of, yeah. okay. So Columbia had the CD club kids. This would be like Netflix when you actually get the hard copy. And you would literally, you would tape a penny. Or a quarter to a card to a card, a card. send that shit in, and then you'd get CDs, and it was you pay for the shipping. It'd be unbelievable. It was remember that shit. Yes. Oh my god, it was the best ever. I got exposed to so much stuff that so way. much stuff that way because I was like, I could pick twenty CDs exactly. And there you go. Once again, we had to tactile. Yeah, there was a tactile uh, research that happened. Needless to say, one of the albums on that Columbia drop was the best of Zap and Roger. Mm. And I felt like that's actually when my mom, who grew up on it, just, I got exposed to it because I was like- My dad was always playing it. Always playing it. Always. And then when that CD came out, obviously it was more accessible than the goddamn uh, A-Track. Yeah. Because we had it on A-Track. But uh, we had it on A-Track. A-Track Kids was another form of a Mm. uh, music uh, medium that used to- they're really fine. We no one talked. Had an I kind of. I want an A track. We had an album. We had. We had. A, we had a record player. And we had the A track of it. We had the A track. Like, yeah. Was that an A track of more poor people thing? I don't know. Um, so needless to say, uh, Zap and Roger kind of got reinfused to, I guess, now what we're calling Zennials. And I'll never forget, like at my prom, all of us lost our minds. That was the. That was a blue up. They played the Zap and Roger Mega Mix, and everyone lost their mind. Like, because it was literally like the, 
it was literally another way kids lose their mind to one more time by Daft Punk or Bruno Mars song. Yeah. But they like were, that auto tune. The first to do the, it. I mean, it was, like, a well, it, was like Peter, that? Well, it was Peter Frampton did the thing. Right. And then Zapp and Roger uh, made it kind of, they dope. made it signature. They too. made a signature, but they were the ones too playing with that first electronic, like super Juno synth yeah. out process, 16 bits. 16 bits. And, and you know, computer love, Bitch, I don't I listen. I, can't I cannot. Take it. You can't even say the words "computer love" to me without me thinking of my father. I can't take it. And I, and you know, I think that brings up an interesting point. You know, who your parents are and their taste in music yes. has such an impact on what you absorb and how you, how what you kind of take on and what you value musically too. Well, we're both Californians too. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think there, there's. I mean, I think definitively we all know this. There's a vibe to California, uh, like, uh, uh, on a Mexican tip, we had, a uh, uh, East side story. Is that what it was called? Do you remember those compilation tapes for cruising? Did you remember? So there were these little compilation tapes that came in the white tape player. It was called East side story. No. Cause I just said East side sushi before, but no East side. Hold on. Anyway. So there were compilation tapes that you would go cruising to. And it was like Aaron Neville. Tell it like it is. Yes. Right. And it was like, um, uh, all these, uh, kind of late sixties, um, blues songs that you would cruise slow to jams. slow jams and like i grew up on that shit. you grew up listening to art lebeau yes <laughs> <I'll kill you. laughs> so art lebeau was his wanna, dj I in southern california I cannot take it. and he'd do like requests at night you take the requests like the and it was always like it was like the the quiet storm or whatever and you you and you request people on the rate people request their their song and, and you would call the radio and also and, that's like where and then then and then cutting to like all these other boys like spandu ballet yeah first time you heard blue but then cutting off of that p.m dawn PM why dawn. do we never talk about them anymore p.m dawn giving yeah. you everything they kind of showed up and were like we're good you know p.m dawn my god um they were so I but, just think it's like so much. Pa- it's almost like a pastiche, right? Because I think about all of, all of those acts. But I also think about like the Spin Doctors because I grew up in California. The fucking so Spin like, Doctors. Hearing growing up, you were either a Safe Harris fan or a No Doubt fan. Yes, those they, there was it was the battle of these two ska bands the and No ska- Doubt won. Well, let's talk about ska. No one even mentions that as a genre anymore. It all started with ska and like Three Eleven and Three Eleven, and also interestingly enough, a Christian group that crossed over called Jars of Clay. Ooh, Jars, Jars oh, of ben, fucking Clay, Jars of Clay, and DC Talk. Days. <laughs> that shit, DC Talk. I can't take it. <laughs> DC Talk, who interestingly, I don't care what anyone says, uh, Color Me Bad, Bad was influenced by. Color Me Bad. Color, and then, and then fucking going on that tip, Bell, my, my first CD, my first CD I ever owned, two, was Motown Philly and Bell Biv DeVoe. Poison. Everything. And then after that was Into the Woods. So I guess it's a little different for me because I grew up in a black ass household. So I'd been listening to New Edition since Candy Girl. No, but new, so of course like, New Edition. Three, of course, yes. But I mean, that was not the, the first CD. Well, the first. Well, the first, because we were kind of poor. Like I didn't get a, We won a CD actually off of a, off of a DJ at first, a radio, radio station. The first actual LP I owned that I bought was Janet's Control. 
I had the, the very first one, I but I also had purple rain. Oh no, no, I had was control with the red cover. Mm-hmm. Yes, yep. Um, what was my rain. first CD? I don't remember what my first CD was. I remember my dad adapting it to the technology very, very quickly. I feel. Oh, I remember what my first CD was what. Debbie Gibson, Out of the Blue. Yes. <laughs> that was my very Only first CD. in my dreams. Oh, Debbie. Good old Deborah Gibson. Who was it? Debbie Gibson, bless with, her heart. With her uh, perched on this all-white cover, squeezing a teddy bear in ripped jeans. Um, there was a point where you couldn't tell me I was not Deborah Gibson. Oh, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> and you know what's interesting is how during the, uh, the initial birth of all these artists i think it is important to remember that debbie gibson tiffany yes uh janet jackson uh well, how well, are you why are you putting well, janet in no, the same con no 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 no. we're gonna go back to janet oh actually no here's what i meant to say debbie gibson tiffany and madonna were all on the same level for three seconds it's fucking true they had the same airplay no if you think about those three girls, they showed up and get a figure. Madonna showed up with, with borderline and it was huge, but it was getting as much play and people were as bullshit crazy about those albums. It was crazy how there I was don't a think le- that timelines. Correct. There, there was because a level. There was Madonna's a- first album came out. Well, into the groove came out in 79 or seven or 80. I think the first album came out in 82. Debbie Gibson didn't hit the scenes like 85 or 86. And she hit around the same time Tiffany did. So Madonna had like, a good four or five years. On 1986. 1986 what? Into the Groove. The first album from Madonna? Yeah, I know. girl, I remember this. I, this is, I, no. They, yes. Because Like a Virgin came out in like 82 or 83. And that was the very first album. Let's see. Like a Virgin came out in 84. 84, right. But that's what blew her up. But what I'm saying is there was this weird level playing field with all those pop girls for a hot minute. They were all the hottest of the hots. Obviously, Madonna is an icon and we didn't realize she was going to be Madonna, but she moved past. You know what I mean? In the same way, that's why Britney's a goddamn icon because of all those girls that showed up. She lasted. Right. Because I remember that. I remember... Uh, to me, Madonna was synonymous with Debbie Gibson and Tiffany. Okay, yeah. I mean, Everybody as far, as far came as, out in 82, uh, yeah, and then Broning Up came out in 83. Exactly. As far as, as far as what was in my ears as a young little dude mm. on the radio, they were all grouped together, and then Madonna, the cream rose to the top. You know what I mean? And that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that they were all the same artists, but it was interesting how the, how the playing field was leveled. And then for then, in the middle of all that, right, who do we have showing up? But Bonnie Tyler reminding you once again that there's a total eclipse of the heart. Okay. So th- it was, then we had these infusions of these women. And these sh- random and then, girls. Wait, and stop. And then Laura Branigan showing up, screaming, Gloria, and like that, all that madness. When did, wasn't that earlier? When it was, was all around the same time. And Laura <laughs> Branigan tragically passed away early too. You, you know who I, who will always be an, uh, an imprint of that era for me? She only had one fucking hit. But baby, Alana Miles, Black Velvet, oh, rocks! It's, it's everything. My world. It's too much. <laughs> like, oh, it's 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 literally 1982. Yeah, like so. Here come all these, and it was interesting because if you listen to Gloria, if you go back to it, Gloria 
was jumping off of the uh, influence of like Xanadu. Mm-hmm. It was the same yeah. production. Yeah. That new thing called synthesizers and like electronic infusions. And and it was that same energy of like. It, it could have been an Olivia hello, Newton-John track. Goddess Olivia Newton-John. Yeah. Don't come for her. Yeah. You know, and it could have been on the same soundtrack. So we, we had that happening and you had these like, well, Olivia Newton-John, I think it's safe to say, is a singer. Yeah. And Laura Branigan Actually, it's really a tragedy because that she could wail. She kind of had everything happening first. I yeah. feel like she would have become a Broadway star if she would have lived, like kind of moved into that mm-hmm. uh, genre and probably still been with us. But then all of a sudden you had these little tenacious itty bitties. Like you had the the hustler from from Manhattan, from Manhattan, from Manhattan right? You had uh, Debbie repping for that very Debbie Gibson thing. You had Tiffany in the mall. And then there were these girls who kind of showed up doing their little thing who weren't necessarily the best singers, but they had a quality about them that was pop. Um, Yeah. I look in the influx of the groups, like the cover girls, the cover girls and seduction seduction. Also, can we take a moment for Lisa, Lisa? I can't, (laughs) I can't take it. We're going to, Oh wait, no wait. And if we're going to talk about Lisa, Lisa, we have to talk about Sheila E. I don't understand the connection. Sheila E showed up as part of all of that as Tito Fuentes's uh, daughter, like doing something also very original with like, I think Sheila is a different animal because she was part of princess camp. Princess camp. Prince. You make a very good point. That was a whole different ball of wax. Because well, I mean, was in his band first. But Sheila E was, I, and then he I, I don't her. care what anyone says. I mean, aside from uh, uh, Goddess herself, Diamond and Pearl. Um, Rosie Gaines? Aside from Rosie Gaines, Sheila E, as far as like just sheer musicianship, was the most talented of all his protégés. Because, I mean, her as a percussionist, she is, it's astounding what she can do. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Well, she is a, a beast. She was well, literally bred for that. Well, yeah, she's literally yeah, she, she's literally the offspring of a legend. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, he, you know, and then and there you go. We could do a whole episode about how Prince really ultimately had Prince's summer camp for, like, uh, potential badasses. Uh, yes. Like, if you just look at Prince in the new power generation, but then you go back to Prince's MPG? camp. MPG? MPG. And then you go back to Prince's camp for... Um, uh, Purple Rain, that whole crew that, that was in the movie. Crew. And then you have, but then if you, even if you just look at the women, right? So you the had women. the Sheila E's, you had Sheena Easton, you had, you she- had Wendy, you had, you had Wendy and Lisa, and Lisa, you had Apollonia, Wendy and Lisa had also Vanity. giving you, oh, Wendy and Lisa also giving you like a very like healthy uh, lesbian uh, uh, energy, full on which, which was something that like you know we really didn't talk about, you know, and giving right. that mystery of like of 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 queer culture, which is interesting because if you really think about it, Prince in so many ways, I, to me he's an icon for queer culture. I mean, because he led the forefront because he was heterosexual to make right. people uh, accept the fact that, you know, he kind of had, he had very much to, to the to last day on earth, had a gender fuck sensibility about him with his aesthetic, uh, did whatever the hell he wanted to do. Yeah. There was no rules. Like, it, uh, well, represent, even, represented was, every type of lifestyle and, you and, and was of. talking about it. And you was know, talking and controversy came out in 78. He literally says the words, am I black or white? Am I straight or gay? Yeah. People were asking. And then remember <laughs> like, on Oprah how he said sometimes he identifies with, as he feels more like a woman than a man sometimes. Yeah. And he just was really dealing with like gender identity and just 
all these, you know, the corset of, of, of things that we deal with now that now finally, finally, the dialogue is started. Prince, but also, and what was, what was so savage about Prince is that all of those things and the, the androgyny and the sexual energy, but he would also easily steal your girl of challenged. Easily snatch her. Like, before you could say, I'm going to go get a dirt. Done. And she's not coming back home. No. <laughs> well, no. It's not, it's not going to happen. It's never happening. So, um, we should take a break. Yes. When we come back, we're going to talk about our current obsessions. I don't believe taking you through the annals of our, of our history, our musical history. Yeah, but I mean, you know. We'll talk about what we're really vibing on right now on Spotify. Word. This episode is brought to you by Poseidon Theater Company's The Cooping Theory, an immersive paranormal experience based on the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe, playing for a limited three-week engagement from October 11th through the 31st, just in time for Halloween. Please come and experience this one-of-a-kind theatrical event. Visit us at knock3times.com to find out more information on tickets. Listeners can save with code CREATIVE. That's knock3times3x. The Creative Hustle Podcast is brought to you today by House Urban, all natural skin and body care for the professional performer. Now, the House Urban brand is known for its use of natural ingredients, clean formulations, and handcrafted small batches. Paired with stylish packaging and show-stopping fragrances, it's developed a cult following amongst Broadway performers and pro makeup artists. The products are designed to align body and spirit in order to advance one's career, not hold it back. And we have a very special gift for you Creative Hustle listeners. If you visit www.houseurban.com and enter the code CREATIVEHUSTLE, you'll get 20% off your first order. So listen, you're going to feel really good, your face is going to look great, and you're going to book that gig. And I'm pretty sure you'll be a house bunny after that. Houseurban.com. We have all your needs. Look like art, smell like love. All right, and we are back and semi dehydrated from having some uh, iced coffee. Cold brew. Um, I feel I, like I was saying this on during the break. I honestly feel like we could go into another episode of this and have part two of music uh, just because it's so. It's everything. And also, we didn't ever really talk about Janet. I feel like she warrants her own episode. I don't. I don't think there's enough time or like enough space to wedge her into like. Jenna Jackson is, is the advent of Hassan and I's uh, initial dialogue starting as well, which is hilarious to me. Um, why were we being so grumpy that day too, where we wouldn't dance? We were both sitting at Posh, and we were not dancing. Remember David? Well, because number one, Posh is this very small bar. It is very so small. You have all these people who we were, were, just and like, we were young, but we, you and I both were like not having it. Yeah, we were. We weren't. We were in our bags. That we were day. like not. We were in a terrible mood. Probably like had a bad dance class. I bet you that's what it was. I guarantee you. Because when you have a bad dance class, that shit is like a terrible karaoke session. You're it's, so mad. Yeah, it's bad. You're like, I failed today at this combo. Yeah. Because uh, I bet you that's what it was. We're like, I'm not dancing. It's, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it was something similar or related. Where I invited you to China Club. All right. So, you know, I was joking how like when you're in high school, I'm sure a lot of you experienced this, uh, where like you sometimes mark... Uh, your high school experiences with, oh, well, remember that time that Susie and and Sammy got in that argument? I was doing Pippin or like, you know, like stupid shit like that. I feel like, though, in that sense, without question, without us even realizing, music is really the markers of our lives. Yeah. Uh, the Which marker- is also like we could re- the reason why we could kind of roll off dates and times is because you're relating it back to periods of your life. You remember what you were doing 
when you heard this thing or you were playing this thing. And sometimes it's not even conscious. It just relates back. It's there. And, you know, it, it really is the soundtrack of your life. You know, it's actually interesting. I don't know where this point is even coming from, but I dated a deaf boy for a short amount of time. And it made me think about music a lot and mm. thinking about. Do you a, sign? I did at the time. It's like when you pick up a language because you're immersed. Yeah. I, I learned enough because I, I wanted to be able to communicate. And uh, you were in LA. Um, and I mean, it was, it went on for a little while. Um, but I remember being so fascinated and trying to describe the music to him that I liked. And like, we would be out. Something that's never even occurred to me. Yeah. And it was interesting because he met, um, one of my friends at the time, uh, who's a musician and my friend was so taken aback because he was so used to like literally singing for anyone that would sit down for longer than five minutes and that being his identity. And he didn't really know how to act around a person who didn't give a fuck about his voice. Yeah. What an interesting other experience because that clearly means that we would talk about it. There's other senses that are heightened and the way that they would mark their lives. But the fact that, uh, you know, the, the hearing impaired community, at least this is what I was told, you know, they still being cognizant of all the artists that were popular. And then, you know, I would describe the different artists and like the kind of music that I liked from them. And he found that fascinating because he said a lot of the guys he date, dated who weren't uh, hearing impaired, they didn't ever want to describe the music for some reason, whereas he enjoyed that. Um, and plus he also had the capacity to be able to hear like beats. Mm. So that's why they would all still go out dancing. Um, when I say they, I mean him and his friends who also were uh, uh, hearing impaired. And so it was just... I remember thinking about how lucky we are if you're to be able to have that gift of music. Yeah. And it doesn't make your life less, but music is definitely a gift and it's, it's everything really in so many ways. I mean, think about a movie with no music and then when movies have no music, it's to make a point. point. Yeah. And so you don't even notice it that, that when a, when a movie is scored, it's just driving the action. And most people don't really even, you, you get the, the end result because it's making you feel a certain way. It's coloring a scene, but you don't realize it's there. Yep. Most of us. So that said, what are you currently listening to? What are you currently about? Uh, currently, um, I am uh, deep into um, research mode. Um, on a dance end of things, actually, let's do a couple different genres here. Let's do one. Um, I'm I'm going back to what we were talking about. I'm definitely uh, revisiting uh, my roots of my youth. So all the artists that we actually had aforementioned. I've also actually uh, really been into uh, in the last year or two, uh, kind of chasing the different uh, drag artists who become famous now and listening to their. Uh, music because you know a lot of them don't sing so what it really is is an energy that they're giving you as recording artists that make me like crack up like Alaska Thunderfuck mm -hmm. and actually it kind of reminds me of those old school pride jams where they'd be like uh, we're here we're all here but there'd be some queen just like giving you life and a beat would kick in so without naming too many names that's kind of one of the things I've been into um, I've also really uh, weirdly realized that um Katy Perry is very, very good 
work music. I, I didn't even know that that was a thing. It happened by accident. But someone I'm really tripping off of is uh, uh, Tejo Te- uh, Tierdo. So it's T-E-H-O Tierdo. Tejo Tierdo. I can, it's Italian. I'm maybe massacring his name. But I saw this production um, by uh, Enda Walsh, a uh, play called Arlington. And uh, it was very music heavy. And it was it was basically like a dystopian love story about people uh, without it's hard to explain the plot because it was actually criticized for being a little too elusive. But he ultimately was about human connection and um, disconnection. And he created this sound score that had the thing that I think a lot of us fall weak to at the knees, this beautiful, haunting string driven melody um, that literally he encapsulated the sound of uh, longing, uh, empathy, and somehow hope. And I was so moved by the final moments of this play where no words were spoken and the music just kept swelling and swelling and swelling. And um, it, it blew my mind. And so I've been a little obsessed with him. He's an Italian artist that initially started in a nineties rock band. I love the evolution of those kind of artists too, who just keep digging and digging and digging. Um, And also I'm kind of frankly on that. end, I'm sort of obsessed with the composers I'm working with. Um, uh, Manuel Paleo is one of my composers. And so is Connor Heffernan. And there are two artists that create these soundscapes that are unbelievable. Uh, CJ, that's Manny's uh, nickname, he lives in Guadalajara, and he creates these soundscapes that are really uh, influenced by sound scores, video games, and he's he's unbelievable. And then Connor uses a myriad of different synthesized instruments and also just actual physical objects where he'll start a sound in a room, put a mic on it, start another sound with an object, put a mic on it, and they create these these intense soundscapes that blow my mind and sort of transcend normal composition. So it's the style of uh, composers right now that I'm actually particularly obsessed with, also because they completely influence um, my imagination. Uh, whereas the one the artist I'm listening to from my childhood. Uh, completely infuse my sentiment. Um, so that's that's where my head's at with my current obsessions. Cool. Um, I'm listening. I'm always listening to a bunch of different things. So I guess it can be broken down. It's a timetable, I suppose. So there's a newer artist. Her name is Lizzo. I'm uh, completely obsessed with her. Um, her EP is called Coconut Oil. I can't. And she's this gorgeous, big, beautiful brown girl who performs in leotards freely and just gets her life. And she, um, she's from Houston. She's a great voice. And she... Lizzo? Lizzo. L-I-Z-Z-O. Okay. Yeah. Um, she has a song about losing her phone, um, <laughs> which is hilarious. I but kill you. not even like the... I'd heard that song before. And I was like, this is cute. You mean like the vibe funny. of that song? 
what do you you've what, heard that particular song yeah, or, or yeah. I'd, I'd heard that song i yeah. didn't know who it was and diving deeper into her work it's so soulful and so beautiful and the whole kind of concept of the ep of coconut oil when she talks about she was chasing all of these things both externally and internally right and what she realized was she needed a little self-love and the moisturizers of coconut oil yeah down because she had everything she needed right so that is amazing um Don Richard, who just continues to blow my mind. Um, Don, formerly of Danity Kane. And Don? Yes. Um, she she completed, she did a three-album trilogy, and that's over, and now I think we're in the Red Era. And the way that she is progressing dance music and electronic music and the way that she's using... Uh, digital influences and she's creating animations and she's doing uh, VR performances with Google and she's really just kind of thinking out of the box in terms of her sound and her aesthetic and the content that she's writing about and the things that she's sort of doing in this space. Down, How do you, how do you say, oh, there she is. Keep going. Um, it's, and her videos, her visuals. And also she's someone who I would... And I don't know how I'm going to do this. I would love to have her on this podcast because she does everything independently. So it's her, her main collaborator. She has her own little company and they do everything. Like they do the publishing. So Redemption is her latest. Yeah. They do um, all she does. She carries when she does her show. She has like a, a custom built like light triangle. She has That's the case. I want. And she builds it on stage before every gig. Like it's just everything is so homegrown and she's running her own little business and doing it in every other way that's opposite of how she's had to do it before when she was stuck in the system of the industry. Um, and it's beautiful The I'll, I'll show you one of the videos when we're done. And I, it's incredible. And she, her vocally, she's amazing. And she's giving you all of the choreography and she's, she's just so ahead of her time. And I wish that people would, um, really take a little more notice. I went to one of her shows, I think it was probably a year ago since I saw her and it, it was just, phenomenal like she really is just um what kind of venues is she playing is she doing like the like the mercury lounge she does it, well or? she did like last time i saw her she was at webster hall and then she plays bam sometimes and like it it really depends on the venue but usually it's clubs that's cool um and then there's uh, everyone's talking about the new scissor album and it deserves to be talked about we waited so long for this girl's album to come out and it finally did and she did not disappoint um and it's a little visceral you know like People, a lot of people are really, they don't like, she talks about pussy a lot on this album. Well, and it, I mean, people talk about dick for uh, how, how many, how long? Well, I mean, the thing is she's heterosexual, but like she literally is like, that's a lot of the focus of her work. Cause that's a lot of the way that men relate to her. And this is the content of, of the songs and music. All right. Um, and then like, I, Sometimes when I'm working, I like to kind of throw it back a little. I've been listening to a lot of Dusty Springfield and Nancy yes. Sinatra. Um, and, you know, just the, the timbre of their voices and the and that really lo-fi production and, and how and gentle hurt. and soothing it is. And, and the, the hurt, hurt, too. Like, the hurt. Going through it. Through it. Um, my favorite Nancy song is Day Trippers. And uh, it just it, it brings up a lot of good memories for me. Um, and then the last thing that I've really been deeping, diving deep into is the expansive library of Mother RuPaul. Oh, my God. It's so funny. I'm so glad you're saying it because I wanted to call that out 
I, I, I let, let's, I, I'm sorry to jump on you this. RuPaul's tracks are off the hook. I feel a little ignorant because I, I feel like I kind of knew, I've known his music for a long time, but now I've taken a deep dive. There's oh, been so much that I've missed. Off the hook. That is so So off the good. hook. And like he is, he, he is giving you everything. Like, and it's always so fresh and of the moment and it ages well. It ages well. You know, like American well, is great. And the album is so good. But if you go back to like Back to My Roots. Oh, oh my God. That song on its own, Back to My Roots. All the time. So good. All the time. Back to My that Roots. That hook is so great. Hook, oh my God. It's so good. Um, and the collaborations are wonderful. And it, he's got this, the thing about RuPaul is that he knows a good hook when he sees, when he yes. hears it. So a lot of times with the songs, the lyrics are meh, the verses might be a little meh, but you get to that hook and that bridge and you're stuck. And there's so much work that he's done over the last 15 years. So many albums, so many singles, so yes. many great remixes. These mm-hmm. are some of the best CJs in the world. Hearing Supermodel completely stripped down and remixed. Um, there was a, a version that I listened to recently. Was it Supermodel? I think it was. I want to pull it up just because I. it was just spot on. And I went, wait a minute. This song is... Um, oh, it's, yeah, it was CoverGirl. It's the X... It's a YLXR remix of CoverGirl. And I went... YLXR remix of CoverGirl. Yeah, and it's on the new collection called Essential RuPaul. And it's so good. And I sat there like, this song is almost as old as I am. And I'm hearing it with new ears. And it really just goes to how how quality that original track was. And how good that acapella performance was. Do you mean, uh, do you mean um, Supermodel? Yeah, uh, CoverGirl. Because CoverGirl was uh, on the first season of RuPaul's Drag Race. Right. Oh, yes. okay. So I'm I'm conflating Cover Girl and Supermodel. Supermodel. Yes. So yes, yes, um, yes. so it's actually Cover Girl that is the the remix. But so that good. track is everything. so good. Um. So just kind of diving in and 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 just realizing how expansive this collection is and how great of a singer RuPaul is too. Yes. Like we don't we don't really think of RuPaul as a singer, but he definitely is. He, he is. definitely can carry a melody and really drive the point home and really make you feel things. And one of my favorite songs of his, they don't like to talk anymore. anymore. Tranny Chaser. Oh, Tranny Chaser's off the but hook. Tranny Chaser. Oh my knocks. gosh. Uh-uh. Go. <laughs> and, and even then, the, the verses are off the hook. So Stink, good. Talk about Stinky Cheese Face. Listen. Stinky Cheese. Stinky even cheese. the intro, when he walks up to the bar. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, some Kavassier. And a Tranny Chaser. Is some Tranny Chaser's up here. Welcome to my stratosphere. Make a move. What you want to do? I ain't got no time for no looky loop, boo. It's a tra- <laughs> so good. I know that we're not supposed to use that word anymore because it's considered a slur and whatnot, but it was definitely a, a snapshot of a certain time, a certain time period, and the song itself is just hold up. I know we, we call it Granny Chaser now, but Granny Chaser. Still. So still. That, that that's what I'm listening to right now. All of those things. Absolutely. Um, I'm just throwing together on on random and repeat. All right, ladies and gents, it is now time for love letters. Okay, so my love letter for today is to a man. A man. A man. He's a star of a show that I love. He's a smart man. I realize that I'm just like. I, I feel it's almost the same. like, by the way, that he's staring at like a big frosted cupcake right now. So I'm very curious to see what is causing such a. Such I'm a sort of in love eyes. with him. I kind of have a crush on him. 
um, Marcus Limonis from The Prophet on CNBC. Uh, so The Prophet, if you haven't seen it, it's a show where Marcus, Marcus is a serial entrepreneur and a huge investor. Marcus Limonis. Limonis. Yes. And he, um, so he has a show called The Prophet and he, there are these businesses who are um, doing okay, but are struggling to a degree, right? They're struggling somewhere in their business. And he comes in, he assesses the business. He sees that there's a spot for them in their portfolio. And then he offers them some capital in exchange for X amount of the company. And then he goes into making over the businesses structurally um, and making sure they, they're set up to win. The profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, Yes, it's in the actual profit, the money profits. Um, and Marcus is one of those people where he's extremely smart. He's very rich. Um, but he also just genuinely really cares about people and wants to teach them the tools that they need to succeed. And um, he's, I just have a soft spot for him. The way that he handles all these different businesses and business owners who are in various throws and kind of on their last legs and the way that, I don't, I don't want to say that he swoops in because he does swoop in with a check. But is, there's a very human, like heart-led element to it, where he he assesses what what their business issue is, but then he gets to the core of what the psychological and emotional issue is. And yeah. a lot of the times, they're family-run businesses, and the strain has affected the family. Of course. Um, and uh, he kind of helps sort to sort that out, and he, by extension, becomes part of their family, and he welcomes them in, and it's such a great show, and you learn a lot about business in general, but how relationships are really the driving factor in success across the board. Yes. Um, So I was watching the show the other day and he basically adopted this, um, this company that does like acoustic treating, but they do it in pieces of artwork. So it looks like a photo or whatever, but it's actual acoustic, uh, an acoustic barrier to soundproof a room. That's dope. And these guys were pretty much, on their last legs. Like they didn't, they were putting all their money into the business. They were sleeping on couches. They didn't have their own home at this point. Um, and they were doing all of the manufacturing themselves and it was not a good look. Marcus came in and was like, listen, I have a, um, a printing company that I've invested in based in Pennsylvania, move to Pennsylvania and we can move your manufacturing into there and they can help you, blah, blah. So they moved to Pennsylvania. He puts them up in an apartment and he welcomes them into this bigger family. They wind up doing this huge pitch for Hard Rock Hotels. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, like Marcus set that up where they he, they created all this custom stuff for Hard Rock. Um, wow. And like gave them their own office space and essentially turned around their fortunes. Um, so I'm watching this and there's a guy who works for the printing company who was fine AF to begin with. I was like, who's that? Like I saw him in the back. I was like, oh, who, who that? So they yeah. go, they do this big pitch for the global Hard Rock people. The guy like orders X amount on the spot. Everyone's excited. And they cut to this shot of that guy I was talking about crying. So I'm live tweeting it with the rest of the CNBC family. And I ask, can someone explain to me why he's crying? Because he's not even part of this. What you crying for? Like, I don't understand. I was thoroughly confused. And it was this like three second shot of him with like a single tear rolling down his face. And I was just like, did you work for the print? I don't understand. So Marcus response to me directly and he says something to the extent of that guy's wonderful and he was so excited for them that he was moved to tears and 
I was like, oh, that's sweet. Cool. And thank you, Marcus. Also, I know you see me, Marcus. I'm on your radar. It's cool. Mm-hmm. It's fine. So that's my love note. My love note or my love letter goes to Marcus Limonis and the entire CMBC team uh, for, for such a great show for highlighting entrepreneurs all over the country of different types and different stripes, um, giving people opportunities and, um, and Marcus just saving the day. That's, I love everything about that. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, responses to tweets, now that I think about it. So ladies and gentlemen, um, I think, I think might as well just do it. Let's just do it. So my love note, uh, my, did you catch that Gordon? My love letter is going to go out to someone we mentioned a lot. Mother herself, Rue Paul. Call me mother. Rue Paul, Andre Charles. Okay. We all know, we know now, but RuPaul, I always say, is like my Oprah, uh, the way people look at because, first of all, everything that he's accomplished, and now because we get the luxury of listening to his podcast, we learn a little bit more about his own philosophy, but I just, he's, he's such an inspiration to me as someone who, with the tenacity of what he had to use, chased it, focused it. And got it. And also did it starting on the, you know, via NYC and Atlanta and several other places, but, you know, made it happen and is really now someone who is chasing a spiritual journey. Um, There's also other things about him that I find very inspirational uh, because, uh, you know, as he always says, you know, wink, wink, you know, we're all part of the same group of friends. Um, and I find that to be very inspirational as well. I look at it as as a as a shining beacon of someone who has the wherewithal and the self discipline to get to ultimately the core of why, which is something we've talked about on this show a lot, and to figure out like where is it that you're coming from with your with your head and your motivation, and like worrying about your own goddamn self. You know, like what's the favorite thing he says? You know, how you know. Everyone say love. How are you going to love someone if you don't love yourself? Like all these things that he's doing to really continue pushing the envelope with putting uh, queer culture at the forefront of popular culture. I mean, he's one of the few people who actually legitimately has made. Uh, I mean, they make money off of Trader Paul's Drag Race now. I mean, it is a legitimate Emmy Award winning franchise. It is not a fringe on the side situation, like we are at the forefront and it's also changing the perception of people's thought process when it comes to our community, our culture. And also just like he says, the tenacity of the human spirit. I read recently that RuPaul's Drag Race has now launched the careers of 111 performers. Unbelievable. 111 people are regularly booking and earning a living because of this show. And bear in mind that also is coming from the fact that those 111 people had the wherewithal to figure out how to run their goddamn lives. Right. Because that show's cute 
But if you don't know how to run your damn business, like we talk about. Especially if you don't win. You really got to figure it out. Yeah, you got to figure it out. Especially if you're not top five. Like, how do you continue to maintain? And the truth of the matter is, is anyone who makes it on RuPaul's Drag Race is a goddamn winner. Yeah. Ipso facto. The amount of people who come into that, that I can't even imagine how. I don't Those even audition know. tapes alone. Can't, can't take it. You know, and then I think one of the reasons this is even at the forefront is because I'm still trying to figure out uh, with no instruction, even from my friend here. I don't know what the fuck Twitter is. All right. I'm still like an old man. Like I'm like blinking at it. I'm trying to figure out what it means. And then suddenly I realized, actually, I think I know on one level what it means. It's an interesting way, much like you did with Marcus mm-hmm. to connect and actually have someone phys- like connect right back with you. So I responded to a RuPaul tweet just out of sheer sassiness, sheer just yesness. And then gift a little Octavia from Paris is burning. And RuPaul not only retweeted that shit, but he repurposed it at my handle. And I have to say, I was like, oh, this is what Twitter is. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. The light bulb went off. And I literally, my brain exploded. And I'm just going to say it out to you, RuPaul. Not that you're listening to this. If you were, that's great. But that shit meant the world to me to have someone that I look at as literally a, a guru and an icon of tenacity and ambition and success to be like, yes, queen, I acknowledge your little comment in my world. And that shit was amazing to me. And it also, I think it spoke to kind of like that same spirit of what you like about Marcus. These are two entrepreneurs, right? Living their lives, honey, who are taking the time to respond to the people that look up to them and are like interested in what they're doing. And I find that to be very interesting. So like that made my whole day, possibly my whole week and possibly on a bad day, I will always scroll back and look at that. But you know, I, I think with RuPaul, I'm just so desperately inspired by him on so many levels. And I'm so grateful that he really in the Olympics of, our culture as um, gays, straights, bisexuals, transsexuals, we're here, you know, all of us, he's really carrying the torch. Yeah. And I think too, it can't be understated. And I think it's hard for me to really frame frame up because of how old I was when RuPaul hit, broke through. I've never really known a time without him, like in my, really, if I think about it. But- I, and when I look back on, because we were talking about just how difficult it is for gay artists to come out of the ghetto, as it were, right? Hello. But can you imagine being a six foot five black drag queen attempting to be played on mainstream top 40 radio and what that took in 1992 for that to happen? Hello. And then not only that, so you're building your music career and that's one, and, and, and with music, you have a little more play, right? Cause you know, we've always had the boy Georges. We've always had people who yes, kind of a little there. gender fucky, but then to turn around and have a talk show mm-hmm. on VH1 mm-hmm. in 93, it was a 94. With Cher. A couple of years later, like major A-list, major A-list guests, A-list sitting down. He wasn't performing. He was sitting down talking to these people. There were just so many of these glass ceilings that he smashed through that would this even still kind of sound unheard of today. It is still unheard of today. And then we look at Drag Race because we're, we just finished season nine. We're going into season 10 this time next year. To have given a platform, a reality, a game show based on the 
microcosm that is drag performers and to see how the world has responded is mind-blowing on every level, culturally, commercially, uh, business-wise. You know, they're still trying to figure out how to license it to other countries. There is so much happening. Well, they're figuring out what to do with it, too, because people, like, he's already talked about it on his podcast, how, like, the licensing for, like, the UK was bought. But I think what's holding them back is, like, how do you do RuPaul's Drag Race without RuPaul? Because oh, they're right. thinking of using their RuPaul. But the truth of the matter is there is only one RuPaul. Right. And also, the completely predestined, like, birth of a star, that, that, that is his God-given name. Yeah. It's like, it's always been there, just like waiting. And I, and I, and I think the thing that I really, I, I find very inspirational about him too, is, again, for all of this facade and aesthetic that is the fun part of what we get to see with what he's manifested. He's ultimately a man who is on a spiritual journey of, of self-enlightenment and figuring out like where his head is at spiritually. And that doesn't even have anything to do with religion. It just has to do with the fact that, you know, we're all on this together and it's like, you know, none of us make it out alive. So you got to figure that shit out. And he is a beacon of that. And it's, it's incredible. And it's, it's hard to even express sort of like Hassan said, how incredible it really is. What, what's, what he, what he has accomplished. Regularly beating the odds, not just beating them, but just grinding that shit into dust, into eyeshadow. Like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible. With a bat. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that that's my love letter to RuPaul on Mother Charles. Ru. Mother Ru. All right. Um, all right, kids. Well, that wraps it up for our uh, our our episode on on audio uh, featured on Ethnics. We're being part of this wonderful content with them and discussing the music of our lives. Yeah, and also, if you want more of this, more. More of this tete-tete. More, more. More of the badnage. More. More of this. Did you say badnage? Yes. I hate you. Um, <laughs> please be sure to rate and subscribe to us on iTunes. iTunes. Download us on SoundCloud. Yep. Follow us on Instagram. And it's all Creative Hustle Podcast and creativehustlepodcast.com. Exactly. You so, can drop us an email. Say hi. We'll yeah. say hi back. We you don't like the shit we was talking? Come, come, come. Let us know. Let us know. We're ready at me. We, uh, it's here. I fight kids. It's I, fine. I, I have a lot of, I drink a lot of cold brew. <laughs> That's it, guys. All right. Remember, don't get it perfect. Get it going. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>